For the Premier League's also rans, 20-something points in March signposts one thing. The club has a relegation scrap on its hands. Cue managerial changes, a tactical overhaul and calls for the players to stand up and be counted. A last-ditch bid for a great escape. But in the battle for survival, it takes resilience and courage to prevail. And on this episode, we celebrate the ultimate relegation scrappers. Nostalgic names serially exposed to this perilous position or perfectly built for the fight. Arthur, hello. Hello, Ben. Very excited about discussing this topic. As fans of Southampton and Reading, we are all too often embroiled in relegation scraps. And so we we feel like we are fairly qualified to talk about this topic. We are the 11 podcast. We talk about nostalgic football players who fit a particular theme each week. And as Ben says today, it is the relegation scrap 11. Players who just thrived when up for a battle at the bottom end of a table. We're employing a 4-4-2 formation today, which seems appropriate for the battle ahead. Uh, If you have any thoughts, please do get in touch at 11pod. That's the word and not the number. Someone to keep the goal count down then, Ben. Who's keeping goal for us today? Oh, Craig Forrest. Ah, yes. The the goalkeeper from Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. (laughs) That's the one. Yeah, I couldn't wait to get that off my chest, get this relegation scrap underway. So many potential choices for goalkeepers in this position. Um, Six foot five, he was an Amazonian goalkeeper with quite the wingspan. I remember him from later in his career, hence my age, playing for West Ham United, where he was a backup keeper, um, but was also a part of their 1999 Intertoto Cup triumph, which of course we talked about on a previous episode. Of course, it's very good to get get some more into Toto Cup legends in. Obviously, that competition is so prestigious and and well thought of that one episode simply is not enough. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, let's mention it every every single time now. Uh, from nineteen eighty five to nineteen ninety seven, Forrest had twelve years and two hundred and sixty three games for Ipswich Town. He'd been signed up as an apprentice uh, and worked his way quickly into the first team and ever-present in the 92-93 season, uh, which was actually when the the Premier League was newly formed. And as a Canadian, he was one of only 13 foreign players to play on the opening weekend. That shows you just how much the top division has changed over that time. But Ipswich weren't a great side back then, so he was a natural choice for a relegation scrap. Ultimately, though, 93-94 would be the relegation scrap I want to talk about. Ipswich went into the final game knowing they needed results to go their way to stay up. uh, And that queued up one of the most dramatic final days ever, Arthur. I wasn't there. Um, I think I was about six months old at the time. So my recollection of this final day is is fairly blurry. So I'm going to let Craig Forrest explain what happened Um, This is from an interview that he gave some years ago. We were going to Blackburn at a time when they were on the up and they had Shearer up front. We needed at least a draw, but felt like we probably needed to win. Thankfully, Blackburn weren't playing for anything, though, because they'd already finished second. It was a different time and communication wasn't easy. We had people on the bench making phone calls to find out what was happening. I was going up for corners because we needed to win, then sprinting back and I could hardly breathe. Then we got another corner. I looked over to the bench and they told me to get back in my goal. It was so confusing. The final whistle blew and we had no idea what was going on. Mark Stein had scored for Chelsea against Sheffield United and we were staying up. We stopped at an off-licence somewhere around Blackpool and they told us to go and load up with alcohol. We got absolutely shit-faced on the way back to Ipswich and could hardly wait to get off the bus. We went into the stadium and were smashing golf balls around, hammering them into the stand off the first team pitch. And boy, it was so much fun. We certainly hit the clock and broke that a bit, meaning it had to be repaired. But it was dark and we had no idea where the balls were going. I love the idea of that celebration after you survived um, from relegation. I've experienced a 
pitch invasion after after surviving in the championship with Southampton a stern John double kept us up and I I've always thought it's it's interesting the dynamics behind the either promotion pitch invasion or relegation survival is that sheer relief that just washes over the entire stadium it's almost I mean I'd say it's almost better it's that it's that brilliant feeling yeah, a hundred percent. And and I guess I felt Forrest was right for this relegation scrap eleven because of his contribution to such an ailing side. Um, he played twenty seven games in that season and kept ten clean sheets, which is astounding for a team at the bottom of the table. And even the following year, where Ipswich did get relegated, he was their player of the season. So. There's no doubt that when, when a team is near the bottom, Craig Forrest is exactly the sort of uh, player you want to have. And I think he fits this mould for me of relegation scrappers in the sense that he's from quite an unusual international nation in Canada. I, I feel like most relegation scrappers do have this unusual kind of Latvian or Lithuanian or Honduran that kind of rises to cult status during that time. And Forrest was certainly that for Ipswich. Who's at left back? So left back's Paul Koncheski. Oh, that's actually, that's a neat shout. I love that. I do think of Paul Koncheski as a scrapper. I really do. Are you uh, trying to appeal to our American listeners by calling it a neat shout? Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing, really. I think I'm kind of, I'm kind of trying to be as international as possible today. (laughs) Um. Paul, I just, I completely agree with you. He is a scrapper. Um, he had a 21-year career with numerous entertaining stops along the way. He had England caps. He was part of one of Liverpool's most bang average teams in their history. Uh, he had a high-profile stint at Billericay Town in recent years. <laughs> um, he's just a quality left back in my mind. Solid in defence, dangerous attacking presence down the left wing. Um, though he didn't score many goals, when he did, they tended to be pretty spectacular. Um, he was also a key component in three particularly spectacular relegation escapes, uh, two of which happened for different clubs in consecutive seasons, which I thought was quite a nice uh, fact. Um, the first of them was West Ham, 2006-07. This was, of course, the controversial Tevez-inspired escape Um, in which they won seven of their last nine games, including against Man United and Arsenal to finish 15th. Uh, Of course, they were later sued by Sheffield United for that Tevez Mascherano signing, but um, an incredible escape nonetheless. Fulham 2007-8, he actually went on to have a few successful years at Fulham, but the first was a real desperate survival. They won their last three games and four of their last five including away at Man City, having been 2-0 down after 70 minutes, uh, only to win 3-2. That was two goals from Diamancy Camera, which I thought was a, <laughs> a very nice name to throw into the mix as well. And their 12th of April 2-0 away win against Reading would essentially relegate Reading on goal mm. difference. I remember um, it well, sadly. Yeah. Was that Reading outfit that season a, uh, a good one or, uh, or very much deserved relegation? Oh, it was so close. I mean, we I remember we beat Derby 4-0 on the final day, but it wasn't enough by that stage. I think we were a little bit guilty of falling foul of second season syndrome, to be honest. I don't think we did enough that summer to kind of bridge that gap that was growing in the Premier League. But hey, um, it's not Paul Koncheski's fault that we were rubbish. No, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and, and and the third of those seasons was Leicester a few years later in, in 2014-15. Um, that was under Nigel Pearson. They won seven of their last nine games, uh, having been bottom at Christmas with only 10 points from 17 games. Uh, and of course, that really did lay the foundations for what was arguably the greatest season in Premier League history. To, to go from that relegation survival to winning the league the following season is just absolutely incredible and the only game they lost in that run was to Chelsea after which Nigel Pearson uttered his famous ostrich line Um, yeah of course that was so bizarre it was and in in looking this up I was reminded of what an utterly bizarre interview it is and so I thought I'd just give you a bit of a reminder unbelievable the fact that you do not understand where I'm coming from if you don't know the answer to that question 
and I think you 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 are an ostrich. Well, your head must be in the sand. Is your head in the sand? Can you, are you flexible enough to get your head in the sand? My suspicion would be no. I can. You can't. Any more questions? Should we wrap it there? You can't. Listen, you've 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 been here often enough for you to ask that question. I think you're either being very very silly or you're being absolutely stupid. One of the two. <laughs> I just I just find that so hilarious. The way he he's like a schoolmaster, just like telling yeah. off a normal student. He's just like <laughs> I don't know. I, I wonder whether that sort of approach to absurd management would get the best out of the likes of Paul Koncheski. But clearly it did. Maybe that's the, the sort of thing that, that makes Koncheski tick. Exactly. Paul just really rose to the occasion. Um, <laughs> also, also I, I really just enjoyed that post his playing career or towards the end, maybe even while he was still playing in the lower leagues, um, he, he started his own pie and mash cafe in Brentwood. Um, wow. It was called Conch's Cafe. And I quite, quite, he talked about when he was a younger player, he said, there was this pie and mash shop next to our school in Dagenham. Every Friday, it'd be proper pie, mash and liquor with jelly deals and a cream soda. Without fail, I used to be a ripe dumpling with a big fat face. I was quite, I was quite tubby when I had my first fitness test at Charlton. (laughs) I love that. We've got a dumpling at left back. Exactly. He's gone full circle. He's back managing now a pie and mash cafe. Um, and it's a great, great thing to see. I, I was was interested to know that Paul Koncheski came through at Senrab, which you might have heard of before. They're a Sunday league team in Wanstead and they have this rich history of bringing through top talent. So in Paul Koncheski's era coming through at Senrab were Jermaine Defoe, John Terry, Ledley King, um, J. Lloyd Samuel. There's a whole list of names that were all playing for this Sunday league team. It is absolutely mental. Um, there's a great Wikipedia article where it, it notices, notes their former players. And you've got the likes of Sol Campbell, of course. But they've also, for some reason, they've thrown in notable players such as Leo Fortune West and Kamal Izzet. So it's a right, <laughs> right mishmash. But certainly that is not your average Sunday league team. Absolutely love that. Big fan. Who's in centre-back? I couldn't really look past David Weatherall. <laughs> I don't know whether that's because he's particularly tall or just because yeah. of his influence on Bradford's relegation escape. Ah, uh, a Bradford player. I was yeah. wondering who David was. David, I mean, he came through at Leeds. He played a number of games for Leeds. In fact, he was actually a two-club man. He played for Leeds and Bradford throughout his career. Um, but I think the achievement he'll be most remembered for was scoring the goal, which kept, and I don't think Bradford fans will really mind me saying this, one of the weakest Premier League sides of all time on paper in the top division. Uh, they were facing relegation after six consecutive defeats at the back end of the 99-2000 season. But Paul Jewell's side survival campaign quickly gained pace with wins at Sunderland and relegation rivals Wimbledon. A penultimate Premier League season fixture with Leicester City, in which they lost 3-0, however, taken the wind out of their sails and many of the journalists expected them to go down, given they were at home to Liverpool on the final day. But Gunnar Haller whipped in a superb free kick and David Weatherall had other ideas. He rose and headed the ball into the back of the net. He was the hero. It kept them up and Wimbledon went down. Um, And it had incredible repercussions throughout the league, that goal as well, because obviously by scoring against Liverpool, it also denied them a place in the Champions League. So it was a massive shock, this final day win for Bradford, which kept them up. Um, and David Weatherall was the hero. I didn't see much of him playing, to be honest. But from what I'm reading, it seems he possessed a lot of the hallmarks of a relegation scrap defender. Uh, six foot three, he was calm, but physical as well. Um, a leader, a bit like Craig Forrest. Um, he captained Bradford 
Uh, and he he very much played every minute in that season in 1990-2000. So a player with a good engine that you could kind of rely on throughout a relegation battle. I, I always think that's one of the things that you you really want to avoid in a relegation scrap is to have players that are in and out the side because of injury and perhaps a poor attitude. David Weatherall certainly wasn't that maybe not the most talented player, not in the England squad or anything, but someone that you could rely on uh, every week. Looking up, David, led me towards a series of merchandise that you can find online. <laughs> Obviously, this is a very iconic goal for Bradford fans, so I can understand why this has happened. Uh, but you can now buy a mug or a cushion with David Weatherall on, peeling away after his goal, which is something that I suppose fans might quite like to have to remember that occasion. But but in, in that wormhole, if you like, I ended up on Bradford City's general club shop. And I kind of t- take for granted sometimes the fact that Reading's blue and white colour scheme is actually fairly inoffensive. Bradford's sort of maroon and orange makes for some very unpleasant materials. I have to draw your attention, Arthur, to a Bradford City double duvet cover that they're currently selling, which I think is the single most disgusting item I've ever seen in my entire life. I will post it on at 11 pod, the word, not the number. I'd love to know what their sales are of that because it is putrid. Yeah, but I mean, Ben, that's incredibly insulting to our loyal Bradford listenership. I'm not. That's, I'm not being offensive towards them. I'm just suggesting that's that their maroon. Colours. That's, the, that's their club colours, Ben. It needs a refresh, Arthur. Maroon and orange. Like, who's thought that's a good idea? It's horrible. Well, I, I just feel like you know half of Dean Windass's goals just wouldn't have seemed quite so iconic were he not wearing those brilliant colours. Oh. I, you know, I, I think, I think also. I think you could uh, you could probably describe them in more flattering colours. You could say uh, claret and gold. Oh, I'm not sure. It's sort of more like really steak and sweet potato. It's it's really <laughs> grim. It makes me feel slightly queasy. So I'm really sorry, Bradford fans. I have absolutely nothing against you, and I'm delighted that David Weatherall's in this team. But um, I will not be visiting your club shop again. Uh, alongside him is a uh, Southampton player, I'm afraid. I, I feel like relegation scraps, I couldn't avoid including at least one. It's Ken Moncow. Oh, of course it's Ken Moncow. <laughs> Who else would it be? <laughs> what a legend at the heart of, of defence for Southampton in the late, um, in the late, so the early 90s uh, and mid 90s, I'd say. He, he played for Feyenoord before earning a move to Chelsea in 1989. Uh, and was voted club player of the year in his first season. Uh, he was the first black player to do so for Chelsea as the team finished fifth in the first division. And he stayed there until a 750 grand move to Southampton in 1992. He's Surinamese, but he's not capped by either them or Holland, probably to uh, to the uh, distress of... Um, who's your defender again? Ryan Donk. Ryan Donk, of course. What a legend he is. Yeah. Um, he was a powerful yet agile uh, centre-back who formed a reliable base at the back for Southampton over his seven seasons with the club. And in those seasons, those relegation battles he endured, he finished in his... So his seven seasons were as follows. 18th, one point from relegation. 18th, one point from relegation. The bit of an outlier, 10th. 17th stayed up on goal difference 16th one point from relegation 12th 17th and like oh the, the guy literally floundered at the bottom with Southampton but was never relegated with us that's an um, incredible record it is in in my mind that 16th place where we stayed up by one point was the most remarkable of them all it was in 1996-97 Southampton were dead and buried bottom of the table with seven matches to play they then won four and drew the other two of their next six matches, escaping relegation by one point, despite a final day defeat to Aston Villa. It was also remarkable for the 6-3 defeat of Man United. That was an egil Ostenstad brace and Ali Deer's introduction to English football. Um, <laughs> Ken Moncow, for his part, did, did feature in that story. He was the one who was subbed on 
for Ali Deer after he himself had replaced Matt Letizier. So Ken nice. formed, a, formed a vital part of that, uh, that decision there. He also made his own indelible mark on another relegation battle. In the 1993-4 season, he scored a last-minute winner in an epic 5-4 defeat of Norwich City. Uh, he nodded in a Matt Letizier corner, uh, and he said of the relegation struggles he had with Southampton, it showed the spirit and the character that we had on the side at the time. Most of the time we were in that position, so we knew now was the time we really had to believe in each other and pull the results out, and we did time and time again. We had a mountain to climb, but then it kicked in, that inner survival, sticking together and knowing that we had the quality with Matt Letizia in the team that will make the difference in any given moment. So, I mean, there he is passing on the uh, the responsibility of of the relegation survivalist in the team to Matt Letizia. And he is right. Matt Letizia did do wonders for that Southampton team, uh, constantly allowing us to punch above our weight in that period of time. But Ken, I just think, provided that re- reliability at the back, uh, was, was a towering presence and was so important to that relegation survival. That's amazing. I, I'm really glad you, you picked up on him. And I think listeners will be delighted as well that they can now tick off Matt Letizier from their The Eleven bingo cards. So they're one closer <laughs> to getting a line there. Do you happen to know, Arthur, what Ken Moncow did after football? You know what I do, actually, Ben? Tell us. Uh, he basically used to frequent a pancake house when he was younger. <laughs> and in 2007, he bought said pancake house and was flipping <laughs> pancakes there until 2009. <laughs> I know. This is fantastic. Apparently, there were 99 different fillings, of which his favourite was banana and raisin. So I think we can we can put him in this category that we have now of footballers opening up food establishments with Sebastian Schemmel, of course, his Upton Park bar that he set up. It's, it's, it seems like a, a fantastic way out of football. They always talk about how you should go on and be a pundit or a coach. I see no reason why you shouldn't set up a food stand. I completely agree. Who's rounding off our defence then? Well, not so round, more tall and lanky. Uh, it's a six foot two Great Dane, Brian Prisker. Oh, Brian. Pr- no, I don't know who that is. You don't? Well, he's a Portsmouth. Um, ah, icon. that would explain it then. I'm yeah, sure. you probably blank him out of your mind. Yeah, and well done for not describing him as an Amazonian. As well. I know <laughs> he's less Amazonian than Craig Forrest. I think you can only have one Amazonian in your team, but you can probably have several juggernauts. So I think we can put yeah. Prisker in this category. Uh, he was a hardworking fullback, um, but from what I read, he he also had a devastating cross, which was underrated by most. Um, in his 468-game career, he played much of it in Denmark and Belgium, but he piqued English interest after playing well in a 4-1 win for his nation against England. Uh, that was a 2005 friendly match. And just five days later, he signed on the dotted line for Portsmouth. He was given a good run in the Portsmouth side by Alan Perran, who signed him. But after Perran was sacked that November... Prisca was dropped by Harry Redknapp and many Portsmouth fans assume this was because Redknapp's disdain for using players other than those that he brought in himself. It's kind of this well-known fact that Redknapp has his boys, if you like, that he brings into every club and Prisca just didn't fit the mould. That was no Pedro Mendes. He was no Pedro Mendes, exactly. However, Portsmouth were battling relegation and after a series of injuries and suspensions, Prisca was given a chance to return to the side against Manchester City on the 11th of March. He was uh, then an ever-present for the rest of the season. They went on an excellent run of form for their final 10 matches, earning the club an unlikely Premiership survival for another year, that in 2006. And I think in many ways, Harry Redknapp was forced to realise the value of a fan favourite in a relegation battle. The Portsmouth fans love Prisca. They love his endeavour and never-say-die attitude. He got the crowd on side and he shored up the Pompey defence for that great escape. I think the headline makers were Matt Taylor, maybe Lamana Luar-Luar. But people probably forget the impact that Prisca had on his return to the side to keep Pompey up in 2006. 
he's now a relatively successful manager, actually. Um, a good man manager, perhaps, rather than a master tactician. And this can be seen uh, when he delivered a post-match press conference in the nude. What? Yeah. Um, so this was apparently a bet in the changing room. Uh, he was at Royal Antwerp and he promised his players that he would do the press conference in the nude if they qualified for the Europa League, which they promptly did. And he did turn up in just a towel and a pair of flip-flops to his interview. So um, a character, for sure, Brian Prisker. He talks of his desire one day to return to England and manage Portsmouth. So who knows? Maybe that might happen. Out of interest, that that Antwerp side as well, I thought you'd like to know, Arthur, is eclectic to say the least. It includes Richie DeLayet, Bjorn Engels, Victor Fischer and Raja Nyingolan. So it really is a bizarre combination of elite footballers and Premier League rejects. Just thinking about his um, his naked press conference, I just thought I should bring up that when he played for Club Bruges, he was competing with fan favourite Olivier de Kock for a place in the starting <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I imagine Prisca wanted to cock out and he's done it now. Kocheski lending his support down the left. Oh, in! Paul Kocheski! I've got a bee in my bonnet, Arthur. You always do, Ben. Yeah. Can you remove it for me? No. Okay. Well, anyway, we're going to get on with this quiz because um, this bee in my bonnet is this commentary phrase which irritates the life out of me of, are they too good to go down? I, I hate it because I don't really know what it means. I'm, I'm not sure anyone in theory is too good to go down over a 38 game season. Um, but I wanted to try and dispel this myth once and for all. So I've prepared a short quiz for you uh, and for the listeners at home at 11 pod, the word, not the number. Let us know how you get on in said quiz. Um, I've got three seasons here. And I'm going to give you three different teams that competed in that season and list a few of the names so you can try and remember the team I'm talking about. Uh, And you need to tell me which of those survived the drop. We're going to try and prove whether you are indeed capable of spotting who's too good to go down. Okay. So firstly, I want to draw attention to the 2001-2002 Premier League season. Um, A fantastic year a vintage year, Uh, and your three teams are as follows. Uh, Firstly, Sunderland, managed by Peter Reid. They had the likes of Niall Quinn, Gavin McCann, Kevin Phillips and Kevin Kilban. That was an unintentional rhyme. Leicester City were in the league that year under Mickey Adams, uh, Robbie Savage, Muzzy Izzet, Frank Sinclair and Tim Flowers were playing for them. And Charlton as well, Alan Kerbishley managing them. Jason Yule, Richard Rufus, Klaus Jensen and Mark Fish, to name a few of their players. So Sunderland, Leicester and Charlton, two of those sides survived the drop. One went down. Who went down? That's quite tough. All of those players, I I know that Yule had some time in the championship, but I don't know whether that was actually with Charlton. He certainly played for us in the championship. I I, th- I know that, again, that Kevin Phillips and Quinn did, but I don't know whether Phillips was in the championship with, but maybe they didn't stay with that club. I think I'm going to go for Leicester, went down. You're absolutely right, Arthur. Oh. The, the B is still wedged in my bonnet. Leicester were 20th. Sunderland narrowly avoided the drop. Uh, the drop. They came 17th that season surviving last minute and Charlton were 14th they were quite comfortable survivors in 0102 a season that I know you tracked very closely was the La Liga season of 2011-12 so I'm going to see if you can identify who was too good to go down here your teams are as follows Villarreal uh, managed by Miguel Angel Lotina uh, Carlos Marchena Jonathan de Guzman Marcos Senna Giuseppe Rossi playing for them Real Betis, managed by Pepe Mel, 
Jose Canos, Benat, um, Roque Santa Cruz, Jefferson Montero, a few names you might recognise, uh, and Granada that season as well under Fabri Gonzalez. They had Odion Igahalo, Noe Pamaro, Ikrachukwe Uche, and Hassan Yebda. <laughs> I, lo- I just love hearing Yebda's name. Yeah, what a man. What a man. I think that... I think you've put Granada in there because you think that I'll think they're the one who will get relegated because they are the least prestigious of those sides, perhaps, oh, man. in that period, certainly. But I think I'm going to go for Betis. So Betis went down? Yeah. But after they had Pepe Mel in charge, they came 13th. Of course they oh, did. Oh, no. Yeah. They were, they were comfortable survivors. Out of those, it was actually Villarreal that went down. Oh. They came 18th. Okay, so the Granada one was a, was a bit of a red herring. You know me too well. It was, a, it was a herring of the red variety. Uh, so you, uh, the B is, is pretty much out my bonnet, but uh, I think you'd need to get this one wrong for it to fully detach itself from my head garment. 2012-2013 championship season this time round. Uh, and your three teams are as follows. Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, they were managed by Dave Jones. They had Chris Kirkland, Anthony Gardner, Martin Taylor and Chris O'Grady. Wolverhampton Wanderers, Dean Saunders was managing them. Sylvani Banks-Blake, George Ella Kobe, Wayne Hennessy, Bakary Sacco. Barnsley, David Flitcroft managing them. Rory Delap, Kelvin Atuhu, Marlon Harewood and Jason Scotland. What a strike force. Oh, that's an amazing strike force. Surely mm. too good to go down. <laughs> mm. Oh, um, yeah, I think I'm going to go Barnsley. That they stayed up or went down? They went down. How could Marlon Harewood and Jason Scotland not stay up? Of course they stayed up, Arthur. They came oh, no. 21st. Uh, Sheffield Wednesday came 18th. It was Wolverhampton Wanderers that finished 23rd under Dean wow. Saunders and went down to League One. So um, there we go. The, the B is freed. There is no such thing as being too good to go down, or at least you can't tell that on paper. Myth dispelled. I wanted a Reading player in here, Arthur. Um, it wouldn't feel quite right without one. So I've gone for Stephen Hunt. Oh, wow. Okay, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. he smacks of relegation battle. He does. Um, A creative and smart left midfielder with an astounding work rate. I wasn't ever sure whether he'd be technically good enough for the Premier League, Um, but he definitely proved me wrong and became a fan's favourite at Reading. Um, He had great combination play with the other Irish contingent we had at the time, Kevin Doyle and Shane Long. Um, And he's an experienced relegation battler. In his five Premier League seasons, he had four relegation battles uh, with Reading in 07-08, he scored seven goals and had six assists, uh, including one on the final day, but it wasn't enough to keep Reading in the division. Um, but despite that, Hunt was named Player of the Year. In 09-10, he was relegated with Hull, uh, but again, he scored an impressive six goals and was once more named Player of the Season, despite relegation. 10-11, Hunt was at Wolves and scored a goal and got an assist on the final day. Uh, and Hunt's goal took Wolves above Birmingham on goal difference, pushing their Midlands rivals um, into pressing men forward. And in turn, that left them exposed at the back and they went down. Wolves survived. So somewhat of a hero on that day. The following year, he would be relegated with Wolves, but he did score the opening goal in a 3-2 win against Birmingham, which was a highlight of that season. So... Three relegations and one survival out of his relegation scraps isn't great reading. But when you actually dig a bit deeper, he was a key figure in all of those battles. And maybe it wasn't his fault. He was the right player in that kind of environment, but didn't go his way. Surrounded by inadequacy in all of those clubs. It makes you feel for Stephen, doesn't it? Um, He was a character on and off the pitch. He had a wacky dress sense. He was a dressing room joker. Um, I once got in the way of his golf shot. Um, He was, yeah, he was, he was playing in the group behind me and I was kind of minding my own business, looking for a golf ball in the rough. 
and uh, it was somewhat obscuring his view of the whole. So he kind of very politely said, "Why can you can you move over a little bit, please?" And I did. Um, so that was fantastic, and that was my my one conversation with Stephen Hunt. Uh, and there's a great video as well of him kicking Simon Cox up the arse in a celebration uh, in Republic of Ireland's game. Uh, he teed him up for a goal, but apparently it was another golfing incident that led to this kick uh, where Cox had been deliberately hitting golf balls down at him and around the other day. And him and Keith Andrews were so annoyed that they decided to take it out on Simon. So um, that's good, isn't it? I just to advise our younger listeners, Cox up the arse was not something I <laughs> fantastic yes delighted to get Stephen into this 11 I feel like one of the reasons is that despite him being a really good player his career never really surpassed being in that kind of bottom quartile of the Premier League and um, therefore, it's very much his home ground. It's where he belongs. And I think he'll be an asset to this side. Do you think he could have reached the upper echelons of the league had someone given him a chance? Do you think he would have thrived? As much as I absolutely adore Stephen Hunt, and obviously we had that success the year before at Reading where we came eighth. No, I don't think he was quite of that level. But he had an incredible career. You know, he played for his nation. Um, he, he had five seasons in the Premier League. I think no complaints. Um, him and his brother made made a fantastic living out of football. And I, I believe Stephen Hunt is now a football agent. So still in the game. Alongside Stephen, Arthur. Is Dean Marnie. <laughs> That's so, there's something about that feels so right. I can't yeah. wait to talk about him. Hull City and in particular Sean Deitch's Burnley. I mean, how much more relegation scrap can you get? I don't think you um, can. First at Hull. In 2008-9, it was Hull's first season in the Premier League under Phil Brown, and they survived by one point from Newcastle. But to be honest, this was down to their superb form at the start of the season. Actually, in the run-in, they had one win in their last 21 games, which is pretty horrific. And Burnley, too, not really at all how I remembered it. He had two promotion seasons, He had only one relegation survival, that being in 2016-17, and that was quite comfortable uh, by six points. And again, not especially impressive in the run-in. In in that season, however, he did score a sweet first-time volley from outside the air against Man City, prompting chants of, Dimane! (laughs) Dimane! The fans just loved him. They loved him. So the stats don't really support him being especially noteworthy as a relegation scrapper. I just think he fits the profile, though. He's, he has a bit of a hard man reputation. 12 yellow cards and a red in the 2012-13 season shows that he just loves doing the dirty work in front of the back four. Um, he was workmanlike. He was a box-to-box midfielder. The kind who I can't help but feel you just like alongside you when you're teetering on the precipice. I also, in my research, very much enjoyed stumbling across the great work of YouTuber Fizzer, who Mm. basically just has this incredible affection for Dean Marnie, to the extent that he describes himself as a sufferer of Dean Marnophilia. creates these videos where he just he just talks about how great Dean Marnie is and he does video he does vlogs when he attends Burnley games and I think even to one extent he got he got a response from Dean Marnie to his passion for him I also very much enjoyed there was a football blog called Goal Amino which talks about a a guy who, who developed a passion for Burnley Football Club through only Dean Marnie and how great Dean Marnie was. He says, all jokes aside, Dean is a player you cannot replace. He's one of a kind. There is no footballer with the leadership, striking ability, precise passing and history of Dean Marnie. And for that, we should all be grateful. Thank you, Dean, for making us laugh at your career, as well as genuinely support and appreciate the work you put in with every step you take on the pitch. I mean, wow. that is Dean Marnie for you. He just elicits those feelings of, of of passion from every fan base he plays for. That was a beautiful segment. I really enjoyed that. I, I could listen to you talking about Dean Marnie all day. 
I think we've all got a, a sort of love affair with Dean Marnie deep down. It's just about exposing it, isn't it? Um, and it feels so right in this 11. He is a relegation scrapper. I'm interested to know that he, he came through at Tottenham. I hadn't really yeah. realised that. That's a spell that I also hadn't realised. He was very much a bright young talent. When he was at Spurs at the age of 20, he'd gone on loan to Gillingham. And frankly, that was a very unsuccessful uh, spell. He, he made only three appearances and he certainly didn't shine. Um, so when he returned to Tottenham, it was as much to his surprise as probably the Spurs fans that he was immediately thrown in at the deep end for only his second Premier League start as a last minute choice to face an Everton team on New Year's Day 2005. And he scored two and got an assist in a 5-2 victory. The second being a superb 25-yard curler into the top right corner. Genuinely, if you'd watched that game and you, you, you were asked to pick out which player on that was, you know, the very, very best Spurs player, you certainly would say Dean Marnie is a sort of club legend for Spurs, not a youngster making only a second start. It's incredible. Absolutely fantastic shout. Um, and alongside him, someone else who came through at one of the, the UK's top sides, Kieran Richardson. Yes, Kieran. Yeah, very good choice. Man, I, I'm relieved I've got that name out there because this is the one I've been toiling over, to be honest, Arthur. Sleepless nights about this other centre midfielder. And it's because Kieran Richardson's probably not the type of midfielder you'd expect to hear of in a relegation scrap. He's not a physical player, nor known for being hardworking, more kind of silky and athletic. But the stats don't lie. Um, After a willy-wonty start to his career at Man United, falling in and out of favour with Alex Ferguson, um, he battled relegation at Sunderland in 07, 08 and 08, 09, before two more successful seasons. Uh, He battled relegation um, at Fulham in 2012 and 2013, and then in 2013-14 as well. Uh, And then Villa as well, he battled relegation in 2014-15 and 2015-16. And in all that time, he only got relegated twice. So a seasoned battler, seasoned scrapper, and unbelievably successful in doing so. But his greatest escape and perhaps the greatest in Premier League history, came on loan at West Brom in 04-05. He joined the Baggies aged just 20 and went into that central midfield berth um, alongside the likes of Ronnie Woolwork and Jonathan Greening. Um, And West Brom were in a a much-talked-about predicament. They'd been bottom of the league at Christmas, eight points the difference between them and escape. Uh, and they had a goal difference of minus 25. He scored his first, Kieran Richardson, in a defeat at Carrow Road, uh, and then wins against Birmingham, Charlton and Everton would follow with Richardson in the side, and that set up an epic finale in their final game of the season at home to Portsmouth. They were still bottom of the table, and Brian Robson's side needed to win at home against Portsmouth to give themselves a chance. Norwich, Southampton and Palace were also in the battle on the final day. And this was a unique season because actually going into the final 90 minutes, no team was relegated. So it was all to play for. West Brom took care of their own business. Uh, Jeff Horsfield and Kieran Richardson scored the goals. Richardson's was an excellent strike, actually. Uh, And that secured a 2-0 victory. And elsewhere, results went their way. Norwich, Southampton and Palace all lost and were relegated with West Brom staying up. Uh, I'm sure you remembered it for other reasons, Arthur, but I remember it for these incredible pictures that came out of the Hawthorns with Kieran Richardson being held aloft by Baggy's fans in the pitch invasion. For some reason, his face and that West Brom kit is kind of my overriding memory of that great escape. It was my, th- it was my 13th birthday present to go to that game, me and my dad. You know, we we were full of hope as Southampton took a one nil lead, uh, and then you know it just it just fell on its <laughs> fell on its head. Oh no! Um, I remember Roy Keane quite cruelly celebrating with clenched fists in front of us at full time as Manu pulled off a two one victory, and of course there was resentment amongst the Saints fans in you know in the knowledge that that perhaps Portsmouth had done West Brom a favour in relegating yeah. their South Coast rivals, and so yes. An unbelievable survival. Uh, West Brom, bottom 
at the start of that day and and to stay up was was phenomenal and uh, I, yeah, I completely agree with you. The fact that any of those bottom teams could have been relegated made it all the more exciting. Right, midfield. Uh, it's it's a player who has been nominated by yourself, Ben, uh, okay. for another eleven, uh, the Mavericks eleven. Okay, uh, but he lost out in a vote to Lewis Boamorte. So oh. I thought I would give El Hajjouf another chance. Oh, I mean that how the mighty have fallen to miss out so agonisingly on the Mavericks eleven, and then find yourself in the relegation scrap eleven. That's a horrible, horrible thing. A fall from grace, but there we Mm. go. Uh, Ben, you already talked about his numerous obnoxious sides of his character, the spitting incidents, the controversial public statements, amongst others. Um, Head over to Spotify if you'd like to hear more. You can listen back on that episode. It was a banger, if I don't say so myself. But he's included today because he was a vital cog in more than a few relegation battling outfits he'd already fought relegation twice actually with french sides Rennes and Lens surviving by one point with the former and three with the latter um, before he earned to move to Liverpool but it's his stints with post Allardyce Bolton under Gary Megson in 2007-8 and pre and post Allardyce Blackburn in the years that followed he also joined Kieran Richardson in that narrow escape in 2008-9 with Sunderland. Yes. Um, it was Allardyce that steadied the ships at both of these two clubs. Uh, his success at Bolton is well documented, not least by ourselves on this podcast. <laughs> but when he left, they nosedived, first under Sammy Lee and then under Gary Megson. Um, Juf was a scorer in the penultimate game of the season, the two wit a 2-0 win against Sunderland, which virtually guaranteed survival. And he embarked on a personal lap of honour at the end of the game after stating that he would be leaving the club, even though he was not out of contract. Uh, I think that sums up the man, you know, uh, very much a cult of the personality, very obsessed with himself, I'd say. Um, And at Blackburn, he participated in another Allardyce-inspired revival in 2008-9, uh, before being dragged back into the scrap in 2010-11 after the Venkis takeover uh, and Allardyce had been replaced by Steve Keane, which that did not go well for, for Blackburn. No. Fortunately for him, he was shipped out for their terrible second half of the season uh, on loan to Rangers, where he actually was pretty successful. Uh, and though Blackburn did survive, they would ultimately be relegated the following year and I just feel that Juve would have been a useful cog in their quest for survival that season. Why? I think just the nastiness of the man probably comes in hand, you know, probably comes in handy in a relegation scrap. I think often relegated teams are criticised for being just a bit too nice and, you know, taking defeat on the chin. And I don't think any of that applies to Juve. He just get under opponents skins and you know anger the opposition fans he'd probably draw bookings uh he scored some key goals in various relegation run-ins and I just think Juf as a player would just be so valuable I think in that in that run-in it's worked well for Rangers in Europe in the past Davis and Juf for the header we asked the question before a ball was kicked. Where were the goals coming from? The answer to that question from El Hadjouf. Okay, so we're in a relegation scrap and fundamentally we need two guys who can get some goals. I, I, not two guy who can get us some goals. We need two guys <laughs> who can get us he'd some probably, goals. He'd probably be okay, actually. He right? actually probably would be all right. I think he was in the Worldies 11, our first ever episode. So our, our two guys already taken. Um, we've got one position up for grabs as per usual. So we've got some fantastic nominations in this week, which we can't wait to share with you. That's one striker. Arthur, you've taken the other striker. The other striker is Jan Arger Fjortoft. Oh, yes. Oh, oh Jan. Yeah. What a player. Yeah, <laughs> love that. Absolutely um, love that. Th- this is a player who wrote his name into Bundesliga folklore. 
okay. on the final day of the 98-99 season. Now, first of all, I need to preface this with we were very grateful to receive a nomination for the last episode from Sebastian from the uh, VFP Stuttgart podcast. And he's been very, uh, very kind in sharing the podcast with his following. And so we we've basically adopted Stuttgart as our Bundesliga team. Yeah. So I talk here about Eintracht Frankfurt with you know nothing but dislike. You know, Stuttgart are my team. But Frankfurt, you know, we've got to we've got to share the love with other Bundesliga teams. And and it was them who escaped relegation from the Bundesliga on the final day of the season in such unbelievably dramatic circumstances. They they won five one over Champions League chasing and previous year champions Kaiserslautern to ensure that they survived on goals scored, not even on goal difference, which they oh shared with Nuremberg. That's this mad. included scoring four goals in the final 20 minutes, uh, the most important of them from Fjortoft, who uh, did an irresistible step over and one-touch finish. Two clubs had already been relegated, but as many as five were still in danger ahead of the last game. So Hansa, Rostock and Stuttgart both won to ensure they weren't sucked in. As it was Nuremberg, who started the day in relative safety of 12th position, that's out of 18 teams, and initially had a far superior goal difference to Frankfurt, were the ones who fell through the trap door after losing to fellow scrappers Freiburg. Fjortoft recalls, I think the pressure is even bigger in a relegation battle. You hear about football players talk about the battle for Europe and getting into the playoffs, but the battle against relegation is far more nerve-wracking because you know what the consequences are for the whole club, the fans, everybody. Prior to this, uh, he'd had a successful period in English football as well. His first season in the Premier League followed several free-scoring seasons with Rapid Vienna, uh, but he didn't hit the ground running. This was at Swindon Town in the Premier League. Also, a team that i completely forgotten played in the Premier League, but yeah. there we go. He struggled initially with knocks and a lack of confidence, but when backs were against the wall, he produced the goods. He scored 12 goals in the final 16 league games, but sadly Swindon were unable to escape relegation due really to their absolutely porous defence. They conceded... 100 goals in the season, which remains a Premier League record. And given the Premier League no longer has 22 sides, it's unlikely to ever be beaten. So congratulations on your 100 conceded Swindon Town. Um, He he also went via successful spells with Middlesbrough and Sheffield United uh, and arrived at Barnsley for another crack in the Premier League. Again, another team I'd forgotten were in the Premier League. Yeah. Barnsley themselves were in dire straits and though his arrival saw an upturn in form and a decent return of six in 15, they were also ultimately relegated. So Germany aside, this represents a reasonably consistent spate of valiant relegations uh, and attempts to stay up. But I don't think he really ever got enough time at any of these clubs. Whenever they stuck by him, he repaid the favour with goals And I just feel I'd like him in my team in a relegation scrap. He scored 308 goals in 614 league games. And that is from the horse's mouth, as we can hear here. Talking about random footballers, I have to say that I am very disappointed in Wikipedia. And I've told my son to sort that out. Because I'm a goal getter and I know exactly how many goals I scored in my Mm. career. I scored... I scored 308 goals in 614 games. And Wikipedia, they only have my league goals. I don't like that because people Google me. So I will talk to them. I have asked my son to sort that out. So he has to find a solution. Does your son work for Wikipedia? Why is he going to sort it out? Everybody works for Wikipedia. Yeah, whatever. Do something. I had a look at the Wikipedia thing. (laughs) And I can confirm that Jan's son has still to change the goals scored and the games played. Wikipedia says 249 in 548, which quite frankly is outrageous, you know, underclubbing him by 50 goals. Poor guy. I love that. And I I enjoy and note the fact that he was a proponent of the aeroplane goal celebration with kind of (laughs) arms lifted either side. 
Um, I appreciate that because I haven't seen it in a long time. I wonder that's whether that's because plane travel has become more common in the noughties and maybe we need to uh, we need a player to take on a new transport celebration maybe like a cross rail celebration i'm not quite sure what that would look like yeah i mean ben just thinking about the optics of Hmm. celebrating travel by plane in today's today's world i mean it's 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 not an environmentally friendly form of travel so no that's true get someone you could get someone replicating sort of electric Cars. yeah like plugging in plugging yes. in their car to an electric port that would exactly. be a fantastic so i'd be right behind that yeah, yeah. i think i think we all quick. would so mm. fingers crossed we see that in years to come well jan has retired so he can't unfortunately be the proponent of that but maybe some of our up for grabs names um are still playing and and could could give that one a go so as we move on to our strike partner who is up for grabs, uh, remember, this one is your decision. You vote on Twitter at 11pod, the word, not the number. And some great nominations have come in this week. First of all, Chris Legg. Um, he is a BBC London sports reporter uh, and also a football author. He's written The Team That Dared to Do, uh, A History of the Women's FA Cup Final and The Women's Football Yearbook. So a fantastic author. There's plenty of uh, the rest of his books that are available on Amazon. I do recommend you check out his Twitter page as well. Uh, Let's see who he's nominated for the relegation scrap 11. Hello, Chris Legg here, BBC London sports reporter and author of Tottenham Books, A Love for the Lane and The Team That Dared to Do. My nomination for the relegation 11 is the main protagonist of that second book, a certain Jurgen Klinsmann. Here, I'm talking about his lesser-remembered second spell at Tottenham when he rejoined for the second half of the 1997-98 campaign. Now, you might not expect a man who is a World Cup winner, the captain of Germany's successful Euro 96 team and twice a UEFA Cup winner to feature in a relegation 11. But if it hadn't been for his performance on a sunny early May day at Selhurst Park in 1998, then it's quite possible Tottenham would have been relegated. Spurs went into the penultimate game of the season away to Wimbledon knowing that anything but victory would likely see the battle for survival go to the final day. Klinsman, now 33 years old, had so far made nothing like the impact he had during that 1994-95 season, but perhaps he was saving it up for one very special day at Selhurst Park. First, his downward header set up Les Ferdinand to give Spurs a lead, but within three minutes, Wimbledon were level. Indeed, Peter Fear scored twice in nine minutes for the Dons to put them 2-1 up on the half-hour mark. Things looked like they were going seriously Spursy. Then, enter Klinsman. A flicked near-post finish from a David Ginola cross made it 2-2 just before half-time. From that point, Klinsman ran riot. He scored three more times in six minutes before the hour mark. Tottenham was staying up. For that reason, Jurgen Klinsmann is my nomination for a place in the relegation 11. That is really interesting because I would never have, I would never have said Jurgen Klinsmann. I, I kind of, in my mind, I think he's better. But at the same time, that justification makes me think, yeah, he, he was pivotal. He was pivotal. And also often these, these incredibly elite players haven't ever delved into a into a scrap and so it's yeah it's a complete completely brilliant justification so uh thanks for that and we have another nomination from hto football uh they're a brilliant twitter page where you can essentially debate about players from yesteryear so they very much fit into our niche of nostalgia uh so please do head over to their twitter page to check them out we've got a nomination from andrew from hto football Let's see who he chooses. I've gone for a man synonymous with playoff drama as well as a relegation narrative, and that man is Bobby Zamora. A striker mainly known for his last gasp winner at Wembley for QPR, Bobby was also instrumental alongside Carlos Tevez back in the 2006-2007 Premier League season during West Ham's fight for survival with notable performances at Arsenal and United at the back end of that campaign. He also missed in the penalty shootout for the Hammers in the 2006 FA Cup final classic against Liverpool. So again, no stranger to drama. His time at QPR not only involved the Wembley winner, but also he was involved in the final day mayhem at the Etihad back in 2012, when Zamora was subbed off near the end of that famous match that saw City win their first Premier League title and QPR stay up on the final day by a single point ahead of Bolton. Bobby Zamora and drama certainly go hand in hand, 
and I think he'd be an ideal pick for a survival 11. Yes, Bobby Zamora, certainly a player you'd want in your trenches when you go to a relegation battle, uh, a, a scorer of key goals at key points as well. Yeah, I was involved in an interview with him once. Um, a nice guy, a nice guy, Bobby Zamora. Uh, glad he makes the cut for this poll. Welcome Tom Midler. Tom is the presenter of the Other Bundesliga, which is an absolutely fantastic podcast. It's about Austrian football, um, three-bit Brits in Vienna, following the Austrian Bundesliga, the national team and more. Please do check that out on your usual um, podcast channels. Delighted to have him on. Let's see who we've got. Hi folks, my nomination for the relegation scrap 11 might be familiar to players who like to build a team from around Europe on Football Manager or perhaps on a Pro Evo Master League, if you remember that. At two metres too tall, this player that I've picked was truly head and shoulders above others. I'm talking about Austrian Stefan Meyerhofer, who fans in England might remember from his time at Wolves, Bristol City or Millwall. He did suffer a relegation with Millwall, but perhaps oddly for a player in this list, he achieved the feat of winning the Austrian Bundesliga with both Rapid Vienna and Red Bull Salzburg, even scoring a golden boot. And he also won the Austrian Cup and the League and Cup in neighbouring Slovakia with AS Trenzin as well. So his trophy cabinet is pretty full for a relegation scrap 11 player, but the end of his career saw him turn into a quick fix at several relegation battlers in Austria. He was at Mattersburg and then after that he moved to VSK Tyrol and he was involved in a bizarre last day relegation shootout against direct rivals Admira in 2020. He drew a blank on the day but so did everybody. It was a nil-nil draw meaning that his team finished bottom and went down. Only for his previous employers Mattersburg to fold after a major banking scandal leaving VSK to stay up. They got a reprieve in the Bundesliga late in the off-season by which time perennial relegation favourites Admira had already signed him up for their relegation campaign next season. He didn't last long near the bottom of the Bundesliga the next season. He moved off to Würzburg in Germany for 2021 for his final season of a long career. They were, of course, relegated as well. Stefan Meyerhofer, the two-metre-tall striker who could not get away from a relegation scrap for love nor money in the last few years of his career. I reckon he's well worthy of a place in the starting eleven here up front. Brilliant. Another name for the poll. And and how fantastic. That's three nominations, Arthur, from wonderful guests this week. Thank you, all of you. Do make sure you check their work out. Completing the poll, a name from me, Wigan's Hugo Rodriguez. Yes, I, I was thinking Wigan was very much lacking from this, this episode thus mm. far. Yeah. We do love that club. We love their players. We love them in a relegation battle. Yeah, 100%. I remember the JJB was a, a classic ground for relegation scraps in the noughties. Um, and a serial relegation battler for them was Hugo. Uh, his greatest relegation scrap achievement was scoring the goal that get Wigan up in 2011 with a 1-0 win at Stoke. Wigan arrived at the Britannia second bottom, but a dramatic header in the, 90, in the 79th minute secured Wigan's Barclay Premier League status. Um, He was an industrious player and nuisance, but also capable of sublime goals out of nowhere. Uh, And Hugo Rodiega actually continues to help underdog teams to this day. He fought a relegation scrap at Bahia in Brazil uh, most recently, aged 36. and It was unsuccessful, Uh, but he was also a top scorer in Denzilaspor's relegation season in Turkey the year before that. So um, he's still playing. Um, a, a classic Colombian striker to uh, have enjoyed a time in the Premier League. And I think he'd fit right in in this relegation scrap 11. What a great lineup. Some really, really good options there. Please do head to Twitter. There'll be a poll up there at 11pod and you can cast your vote and vote someone in to this 11. Shot and covering. Fiat up the shot. Fiat up the goal. Great goal. That's why they signed him. Record signing. The fans love him. On the bench, and I really, really had to mention Gavin McCann. (laughs) Countless relegation scraps with first Everton, Sunderland, Villa, Bolton. A very unglamorous midfielder, I felt, and up for a fight. And then also Haider Helgerson. Oh, what a right. what a guy! Yeah, yeah. Um, two noteworthy relegation scraps in particular: 
uh, 2011-12, uh, the season mostly remembered for Aguero. <laughs> but they survive relegation by a point on the final day of the season, despite that defeat against Man City. An incredible survival and a 35-year-old Helgerson scoring eight in 16, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, and also a survival in the championship. He scored 16 league goals for a side that finished 18th, two points above the championship relegation for Watford in 0405. Uh, so that's a real haul for a relegation fighting team and certainly worthy of consideration. So Hyder as uh, an impact sub taking his place on the bench. Amazing. It has all come together this episode. Um, and the goalkeeper for our relegation scrap 11 is Craig Forrest. Uh, left back Paul Gonczewski. Centre backs David Weatherall and Ken Moncow. Right back Brian Prisker. Across the midfield, left mid Stephen Hunt. Centre mids uh, Dean Marnie and Kieran Richardson. And on the right, El Hadji Juf. And up front, Jan Arga Fjortoft with a striker of your choice. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.